Hello there. I'm Sen Lam, and welcome to Ear to Asia, where we talk with researchers who focus on the region with its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. Ear to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. You might associate the term Indian diaspora with today's Silicon Valley high flyers. For example, the current CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, or his counterpart at Microsoft, Satya Nadella. But the Indian diaspora that first stepped out of the subcontinent almost two centuries ago is far more nuanced. It has a less rosy side, and in our times, unskilled or low-skilled workers in the Persian Gulf countries working for paltry wages in unpleasant and sometimes dangerous conditions. In this episode of Ear to Asia, economist and migration scholar Professor Binod Kadria joins us to discuss the global movement of Indian workers, both skilled and unskilled, in its surprising diversity, and he examines their persistent ties, both cultural and legal, to Mother India. Binod has been studying the Indian diaspora since the 1970s. Besides documenting and analyzing trends, he's also a passionate advocate for the development of India's human resources. Particularly, the less educated members of Indian society who often end up in the global armies of low-skilled labour. Professor Kadria is a faculty of arts Asia scholar at the University of Melbourne and is based at Asia Institute. He's also professor of economics and education at the Zakir Hussain Centre for Educational Studies in Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Binod Kadria concurrently serves as the director of the International Migration and Diaspora Studies (IMDS) project. Binod Kadria, welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you, Sen. Before we begin our discussion, let's look back a little. The British Parliament abolished slavery, mainly of West Africans, in 1833, and it appears that the Indian diaspora began shortly after that. So, where were Indian workers sent by the British Raj? Well, as you have mentioned, after the abolition of slavery. In the 1830s, the Indian workers were recruited by the British Raj in India and sent to countries like Fiji in the Pacific, the Malayan Peninsula, mines in Africa, and also west coast of North America. And what sort of jobs did they take? Well, they were basically engaged in low-skilled labor jobs of plantations uh, like sugar in Fiji. and the caribbean rubber in the malaya coal mines in africa and railroad construction in the western coast of north america both uh, us and canada so that's roughly the global picture and where this migration was concerned was it intended to be temporary did the workers intend to eventually return to india well that's a very interesting point to discuss i would say on paper this early emigration after slavery was voluntary and temporary so that these migrants can go back to their countries of origin if they wanted to do so but the indenture system perpetuated bonded labor and as you would perhaps remember hugh tinker called it the new system of slavery new forms of slavery and that's why what was involved was permit like they had to have a permit to go back home and that permit was very expensive unless they have served a number of years they were not allowed to go back 
So when Western media talk about India's diaspora today, they tend to cite highly educated and highly skilled individuals now found in big business, medicine, academia, uh, for example, Nobel-winning economist Amartya Sen. But let's look at this group as a whole. Why are these skilled Indians sought after by Western nations, especially in America and Britain? Well, I think if we look at the reasons why developed countries like America and Britain and others now in Europe and Canada and also in the Oceania, Australia, New Zealand, all of them, I think this is primarily due to their education in technical lines, technical professions, primarily in medicine and engineering. I would say medicine for Great Britain and engineering in America. And so they felt the real need in these host countries? Yes. In fact, in Great Britain, the need arose from England's own brain drain of medical experts to United States, whereas in the case of America, it was the NASA involvement in Sputnik race against the Soviet Russia that they wanted the engineers. This is the space race. It was the space race. And Binod, your research pays particular interest to the Indian diaspora in the United States and Europe, including the UK. Do we know how many skilled Indian workers and professionals there are, beginning with the US? I think this is the tricky part in migration research. The data are very scanty if you look at the origin countries. The data have to be from the destination countries. So your question is very right. If you ask me how many people of Indian origin and highly skilled and professionals are in the United States, U.S. data are very, very good in that. In fact, if you work it out in terms of the total diaspora size, Indian diaspora, which is 20 million plus now, 10% of that is in the United States. And out of that, about 20% are high skilled workers. The rest of them are also families you know, migrants' families. And what about the United Kingdom? United Kingdom, I would say, has been an older diaspora. It's more diverse in the sense that they have both skilled and unskilled migrants from India. I would say 100,000 in the United Kingdom, and 60% of them would be highly skilled. And of course, one area, one region in the world is the Middle East where South Asia migrant workers tend to flock. And when we talk about South Asian migrant workers in the Middle East, it's usually about construction projects like building soccer stadiums in Qatar for the 2022 World Cup or the next luxury skyscraper in Dubai. These workers come from Bangladesh, Pakistan and elsewhere, but Indians also form a large part of this low-skilled workforce, don't they? Yes. In fact, I had the opportunity of visiting Doha this last summer, and I met some of these low-skilled workers who are very much present there. These migrants are mainly from the south of India, the state of Kerala. And that is one of the states which has a, some kind of a dichotomy within India that literacy is very high there, but at the same time, higher education is not present. So these are the people who just get literate and try to find jobs in the Middle East. So despite the high level of literacy in Kerala, many of the people have to seek jobs overseas as unskilled workers. In fact, not despite the literacy, it is because of literacy that they get the jobs in the Gulf countries. and Because of the level of English? Or? Because of the level of English, because that's the medium of even primary education in Kerala. But they do not go further in terms of secondary education or higher education in the state. And this actually has lately led to an internal migration within India from other states 
to the state of Kerala because there is a shortage of workers in that state. Well, we'll look at the challenges faced by the unskilled workers shortly. But first of all, tell us about the skilled Indian workers in the Persian Gulf countries. How many are there, for example? Well, that's also a substantive size of Indian diaspora there, which is about 30% of the migrants from India are in the high-skilled professions. And if we say, for example, the total size of the diaspora in the Gulf countries is about 6 million, then, you know, 30% of that would be quite a large number. So when did they start appearing in the Gulf countries? As the development and construction and other things developed, then the demand for these professions, mainly for doctors in the hospitals and nurses, you know, a large number of nurses actually go from India, again from the state of Kerala to the Gulf countries. So that's there. Other than that, you also have accountants, you have people related with the oil industry, and some of them are actually not any longer Indian citizens. They are Indian diaspora in the sense that they are persons of Indian origin, but are perhaps living in developed countries like United States, which actually dominates the oil industry in the Gulf countries. And of course, you mentioned construction. Many of the unskilled Indian labor work in the construction industry in the Gulf countries. And of course, we also have many media reports of horrific instances of uh, poor working conditions and poor treatment. Are these media portrayals reasonably accurate, do you think? Yes, more or less they are. At least the perception of the workers is that they are living in very poor conditions and working conditions are not very comfortable. First of all, the climate zone is such that it's very, you know... It's a very challenging climate. Very challenging climate. So whereas the high-skilled professionals and others are working in air-conditioned surroundings, these are the people who are working in the open sun and in the fields. So they are subject to those kind of natural conditions. But at the same time, they live a life of fear and deprivation. And that, I think, is the challenging part that I have seen, that they do not see a future for themselves. And it is basically that they are there to earn a target sum of savings, which they can send back home as remittances. And so there is an element of self-deprivation also, apart from the exploitation that takes place. Where does this climate of fear come from? Uh, Because there are no labor laws there. And even if they are on paper, they are never implemented. And they are actually at the mercy of the agents on the one hand who have sent them. And they actually are under debt for that purpose. And secondly, they are employers because the employers control their visas. So it's almost like a modern day indentured labor. Absolutely, yeah. Modern day indentured labor. And speaking of exploitation, there are many unskilled Indian women who work in the Gulf countries as well, and they themselves also face a set of challenges. Tell us about that. Yes, if we look at women, Indian women or other South Asian women in the Gulf countries as workers, there are mainly two sectors where they are employed. One is the domestic help sector, where they are working as maids in households of not only local people, but also the expatriates. If they're working in the expatriate households, they're more or less comfortable. But the local households, that is where exploitation takes place. And exploitation can be in terms of sexual assault also. One keeps on hearing stories about that, but I think there is underreporting. And that's also for the reason of the fear. But if we look at nurses and others, that is where... There may not be sexual assault, but there is sexual harassment at workplace. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia, brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne. And our guest today is Professor Binod Kadria, an economist and demographer who specialises in the global movement of Indian labour. Binod Kadria, how detrimental to India is this exodus of young talent, if you like, to countries like America and the UK? For example, the discourse in this field has shifted in the sense that People say, well, the brain drain is passe and it is the time of the brain gain. But to my mind, they are two sides of the same coin. And the brain drain takes place in two forms. One is the loss of investment going into their education. And that is a quantitative kind of loss, which can be said that it is compensated by the remittances coming in. But there are question marks there. The other loss, which is more serious in nature, is skill loss in the sense that if you need doctors or engineers or teachers, then no amount of remittance can give you those skills. For example, shortage of teachers is very widespread in India now that India wants to universalize its secondary education and also expand higher education, but we are short of teachers. So that is where the qualitative component of brain drain is affecting and it affects you slowly in the long run. So, you know, it takes time for you to perceive that. And of course, the Indian diaspora has also had quite an impact on India's economy, has it not? You mentioned remittances earlier. And in 1991, India had a balance of payments crisis in which foreign exchange reserves fell so low that India could barely pay for essential imports. And surprisingly, it was the unskilled workers who unwittingly led this balance of payments recovery. Tell us about that. Yeah, that is an interesting story because 1991 was the year when India started opening up under so-called reforms. So that was the time that the balance of payments crisis had taken place and to the extent that India had to pledge its gold to the IMF to get out of that. But other than that, it was the remittances which came to rescue India's position at that time. But what happens in the remittances is that remittances come back to the families when the families are split, when the worker is in the other country and the family is back home. That happens with the unskilled workers and particularly those who are in the Gulf countries. They were sending all this money back home. There was also remittances from the developed countries, but over time that had slowed down because families were joining them and there were nobody back home to whom the remittances were to be sent. It is another matter that at the turn of the century, when the IT phenomenon came up, the younger generation of highly skilled migrants went to these countries and they were either single or recently married. And so they were trying to send money back home to their parents and grandparents. And that also contributed. So remittances has many dimensions. And some of the dimensions are highlighted in terms of the quantum of the remittance. For example, India is at the top of the league now, more than 70 billion US dollar annually coming in. But nobody talks about how these remittances are taking place, whether there is self-deprivation by the unskilled workers. Indeed. I mean, I'm intrigued by the fact that the unskilled workers, even though they might earn to us fairly paltry salaries, yet they form a large chunk of these foreign remittances. How do they manage it? That is a serious question. I mean, to the extent that at times you find that they are starving, they're not having the necessary amount of calories even to eat. 
and then they send this back home. So they're malnourished. Yeah, they're malnourished. Of course, they're malnourished. And when they come back home, they find themselves strangers in their own home because the women folk have started learning to depend on themselves. In fact, the effect of remittance is a question mark, whether it's going into education and health at back home or going into building houses or into dowries, into, you know, conspicuous consumption and so on. So there's a big question mark about how to utilize remittances for development. That may not be happening. It's actually dividing villages in Kerala into two parts. Some parts are very developed, other parts are still deprived. At the same time, I would like to add to your question, which makes it even more interesting, this dichotomy of unskilled and skilled diaspora remittance relationship is that when it comes to remittances from the skilled diaspora, actually there is a reverse remittance. I call it the silent backwash of remittances in the sense that when students are going abroad for higher education, all that overseas tuition fees that is being charged to them goes out of India and nobody compares that amount. And that amount is not small. It's about 15% of the inward remittance that comes into the country. And so you mentioned the social disruptions and also the family disruptions of unskilled workers overseas. But what is their relationship with Mother India like? Do they retain some sort of status as Indians, both skilled and unskilled workers? Well, that is a very important thing. In fact, it started even before the independence of India. Mahatma Gandhi was seen as returning from South Africa to the service of the motherland to take up the challenge of the freedom movement. Nehru, for example, gave the concept of the motherland and so on. So that created some kind of an aspiration for diaspora in these countries, Fiji, Malaya, Caribbean, African countries and so on, that once India gets freedom, it would look after their interest. But uh, interestingly, after independence, when Nehru became prime minister, he followed the non-aligned movement. He actually created that. And that means non-interference into the internal affairs of the other countries. So that actually prompted him to distance himself and India from the diaspora that came to them as a disappointment. And that policy actually continued under Indira Gandhi's regime of self-reliance. It was only in 1977, at the time when I was starting to look at these issues, that the Janata government came to power in India and it started looking at the diaspora. Prior to that, even the highly skilled people like Harbogobin Khurana or Sri Chandrasekhar, who got Nobel Prizes in medicine and physics and so on, were looked down upon as traitors or deserters of the motherland. What is the current attitude now in India towards the diaspora? Now it's completely opposite. So post-1977 and even after that, 1984, when Rajiv Gandhi became the prime minister, he continued with that policy of the Janta government. He actually said it's not brain drain, it's brain bank and we can depend on them. And so the whole attitude of the Indian people, Indian media and Indian government completely changed to the other direction. And the traitors became angels. And of course, with IT revolution and the BPO, business process outsourcing, venture capital, and the names that you mentioned about Silicon Valley, all these became cause of celebration in India. And as far as you're concerned, you've studied this field for decades. How would you advise the Indian government to strike a good balance for the good of India? I would try to look at it in a more holistic manner rather than in bits and pieces. And I think for that, the 
One very fruitful or productive indicator is the productivity itself, the average productivity of the Indian labor or Indian worker. That, surprisingly, is the lowest in the world. If you look at the productivity tables, then the Indian community is a role model in the United States, having the highest productivity. Whereas back in India, the Indian citizen is the contributor of the lowest productivity what, in India. What is the reason for this? Yes, I call it two kinds of poverty. The poverty of education and the poverty of health. We do have the IITs, we do have world-class universities, but at the same time, the proportion of population which is deprived of education and health, which are the two prime determinants of productivity, are lacking. And that, I think, is a challenge that the Indian government should put its mind on, rather than having only short-term objectives of diaspora investment into profit-making activities. I think one needs to put one's eggs into different baskets. And that's where Indian government so far has not been able to concentrate on education and health-related objectives. Well, it's certainly a fascinating field, Binut Khatria. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you, Sen. It has been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Professor Binot Kadria, who's Professor of Economics and Education at the Zakir Hussain Centre for Educational Studies in Jawaharlal Nehru University. And he's also Director of the International Migration and Diaspora Studies, IMDS, project. Binot is also a Faculty of Arts Asia Scholar at the University of Melbourne and is based at Asia Institute. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. And be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes of this podcast series, it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating and write a review on iTunes or like us in SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2016, the University of Melbourne. I'm Sen Lam. Thank you for your company. Bye for now.